Well, good morning. It has been a pleasure to be here this weekend, and I'm grateful to be able to be in this pulpit again. Uh, thank you, Pastor, for entrusting that to me. <clears throat> we have been looking this weekend at this adult retreat, and I know not all of you were there. <laughs> That's okay. But we've been looking at the book of James, chapter 1, so I ask you to turn there today. <clears throat> this is actually the fourth sermon in the series that I've, I'm doing this weekend, but it's okay if you haven't been for the other three. Uh, I will tell you that if you're interested in looking over those outlines, I know Pastor and Pastor Aaron have those, and I uh, would be happy to pass those along to you so you could review those. <clears throat> I told them when we started that the book of James, in the book of James, James outlines 10 characteristics of living faith throughout that book. Uh, we obviously aren't looking at the entire book of James. Uh, we're looking at the first of those characteristics. I want to just uh, read the text, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, just read beginning at verse 1 with me, and we'll read through verse 18, just to get the context. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, or who are scattered abroad, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also with the rich man, or will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You should have received upon entrance today a copy of the outline of today's message. If you didn't, 
I suppose you could feel free to wave your arms and somebody might, because uh, I, I don't know who has them, somebody might bring you one. Uh, I like to hand out an outline so that you can follow the flow of thought, hopefully, and uh, kind of keep up with where we're at. The title of the message is God is Good Every Day. Suppose someone told you, I'm going to inflict upon you a physical disability so that you won't be proud. It's going to be painful, and every time it hurts, I want you to think of me. (laughs) How would you respond? Well, that's essentially what God told the Apostle Paul, isn't it? Listen to how he responded in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. Again, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. He said, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, the world hears that and thinks, that's just strange. That's odd. Now, Paul did not say that because he enjoyed pain. Christians are not masochists who delight in pain. Oh boy, (laughs) a painful experience. (laughs) But we look at life through a different lens than the world, don't we? We have a different worldview. In our study of James this weekend, he has been helping us polish that lens so that we can see the world and God's activity in the world with greater clarity. The book of James is about living faith, or faith that's genuine, faith that's alive, it's real. Throughout this book, James develops these characteristics of living faith that genuine Christians will show. And the first is found in verses 2 through 18 that we've been looking at this weekend, that those with living faith grow through trials. We grow through trials. And in chapter 1, verses 2 through 18, he outlines four appropriate responses to trials. First, we saw in verses 2 through 4, that those with living faith will respond with joy in trials because they know that God is at work. The only way that you can develop this radical worldview is to God help you see it. So we saw from verses 5 through 8, that those with living faith ask God for wisdom. Thirdly, he said that we need to accept what God gives by trusting God in every circumstance. And he said you can do that when you love God more than anything else. Now we have not yet looked at the fourth appropriate response found in verses 13 through 18. We're actually skipping verses 13 through 15, but I'll give you little snippets of it in the message today. And that fourth appropriate response is essentially this. We need to make sure 
that we are not deceived about God's role in trials. We need to make sure we are not deceived about God's role in trials. He first challenges us negatively in verses 13 through 15. He says essentially, don't blame God for your sin. God does not tempt us to sin. And in those verses, we learn that those with living faith remember that God never intends for us to fail. He never intends for us to fail. This morning, we look at the other side where he tells us that everything good comes from God. In fact, God only gives what is good. Now, we have to understand that because we see things around us that don't seem very good, do they? In fact, and the people that have been at the retreat know it's always dangerous when I stray from my notes, and I'm about to do that. But I remember a a well-known book of many years ago entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I have a problem with that book right from the title. Because, first of all, it's assuming that we're good people (laughs) and we're sinners. And secondly, it assumes that the things, that there are many things that come our way that are bad. And I'm here to tell you today that what God gives is good. And everything good comes from God. In fact, God only gives What is good? Today we look at verses 16 through 18. Let's read them one more time. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. These three verses teach us what are in your notes, what is in your notes as our, our take-home truth, that those with living faith remember that everything good comes from God. In verse 16, he brings us face to face with the reality that in trials we are tempted to doubt God's goodness. We are. The paragraph begins with a warning: Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, there's a question as to whether that command goes with what precedes or with what follows. So, in the preceding verse, verses, he says, don't blame God for your sin. You only have yourself to blame. So, if this command is connected to that, he's saying, if you're blaming God, stop deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself, so just stop it. However, if it goes with what follows, where he rehearses God's goodness, then this would mean don't deceive yourself about whether or not God is good. But the reality is the two are related, aren't they? You cannot accuse God of wrongdoing without also denying that God is good. So verse 16 actually functions as a hinge that connects the two sections. It provides us with an appropriate and convicting transition between these verses. And here's the convicting part. James words this command in such a way as to assume that some of his readers were deceived. We could legitimately translate this, stop being deceived. 
I mean, let's face the truth. In trials, we're tempted to doubt God's goodness. James' point is that we must stop this self-deception that gives rise to doubt. Now, I say self-deception because the verses just before this teach that all sin comes from within ourselves. Nothing outside of us can actually cause us to sin. So let's face the fact that not one of us here is above the temptation to doubt God's goodness. And let's, come on, let's admit it. Young mother, pastor's wife, passes at a very young age. Our kids went to school with her. That's like my kid's age, just a little bit older than my oldest. It's easy to let, to to be deceived and start to say, where's the good in that? It's a problem that has dogged God's people throughout history. And we've become really skilled at self-deception. Sometimes we don't even recognize the accusations that we've hurled towards heaven that call into question God's goodness. Sometimes we question God's goodness by wallowing in self-pity, like Jonah. Sometimes we doubt God's goodness by succumbing to a paralyzing fear, like Elijah. Sometimes we suspect God's goodness by continually trusting in our own wisdom, like Peter. It's time to stop. It's time to trust. It's time to rejoice. It's time to count it all joy. Oh, we must stop this self-deception. But before we leave verse 16, I want you to see the end of the verse where we must learn to see this kind of doubt as inconsistent with our identity. James issues that sobering warning, stop being deceived, and then he hastens to add these endearing words, my beloved brothers. I think those words serve two purposes. On the one hand, following such a stern warning, he reassures them that he had confidence they were genuine believers. They possessed living faith. But he is also subtly reminding them of their identity. You belong to God. You're part of this family. And this kind of doubt, questioning God, is inconsistent with who we are. We're believers. We're people of faith. We're people who trust. We're children of God. Oh, my friends, in trials, we're tempted to doubt God's goodness. But number two in your notes, Roman numeral two, instead, we need to contemplate the goodness of God and his gifts. Think about them. Meditate on them. We need to think theologically. Think about God, his goodness, and the goodness of his gifts. Think about these things. In verse 17, James rounds out the section that began back in verse 2 by explaining the reason that he gives this stern warning in verse 16. 
Then in verse 18, he wraps it all up by giving the ultimate illustration of God's goodness. So let's wade into this explanation in ver- found in verse 17. The explanation is that everything good comes from the unchanging God. Look what he says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That verse has three sections. The first teaches us that everything God gives is good. Now notice again, he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. In verse 2, James teaches us that even our trials are cause for rejoicing because we know that through them, God is at work for good purposes. Then we follow the train of thought and we get to verses 13 through 15 where he points his finger in our faces and tells us to stop attributing evil to God. It's not his fault, it's our fault. And by the time we get to verse 17, we might expect to read that everything God does is good. That's the point that he's led us to expect. Yet at first glance, this statement in verse 17 leaves us somewhat unsatisfied. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above. It seems to say that there are gifts that are good and perfect, and there are gifts that aren't. (laughs) Are we left then to sort out the good from the bad? And how does this fit with the command to count it all joy? Now, James does teach in this verse that everything God does is good, but he does it in a more kind of subtle, almost poetic way. He does it with the expression, coming down from the Father. Coming down. He uses a tense in the Greek which envisions these good gifts flowing to us in an unbroken stream. They're constant, they're ongoing. He envisions envisions God continually lavishing us with good gifts. So we can conclude clearly that everything God gives us is good. And I want you to notice specifically how he describes these gifts. We read every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Interestingly, James uses two different words for gift here. The first word for gift that follows the word good has the idea of every act of giving. Every act of giving. It's not the gift itself, but the act of giving. The second one refers to the gift itself. In other words, James has in view that both the process and the results come from God. Now now get that. That's important here. Both the process and the results come from God. Notice also the two different words used to describe these gifts, good and perfect. The root ideas of those words are beneficial and complete. Beneficial and complete. So the act of giving, the process, is beneficial and the gift itself is complete. James is telling us two important truths about what we receive from God. First of all, that the process is for our benefit. We spoke many times Friday night and Saturday at our retreat 
about specific painful trials. I mentioned just some that my wife and I have gone through over the decades. I want you to think about the most painful event that you've experienced in your life that has in turn produced some strength of character. Just think about that for a moment. Might be loss of health. Might be a broken relationship. Might be the death of a loved one. Might be financial disaster. Maybe some expectation dashed to pieces by disappointment. Think about it. Now think about what you learned from those circumstances. Maybe it was patience, trust, sympathy. Maybe a reorientation of your values, and so on. We tend to look at the strength and character as beneficial, don't we? While despising the process. We separate the two in our thinking, don't we? James says, no, no. The process with all of its pain was planned by God for your benefit. You see, process and product are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. Oh, listen, friends, this should be a tremendous comfort for everyone who is crushed right now by suffering, by pain. Maybe you cannot see the end. And all you know is that it hurts. Oh, but take heart. There's an end coming, and we have the promise that the result is exactly what we need. It's exactly what we need. When we finally reach the end, it'll be exactly what we need. Every perfect or complete gift comes from God. In verse 4, James said, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Oh, friends, when we as pliable clay submit to the loving, skillful hand of the potter, he will shape us as he sees fit. And that shaping involves humbling us and breaking our stubborn wills. It involves new ways of seeing ourselves and new ways of seeing others. It involves molding us to his will and conforming us to accomplish his glory. And when it's all over, one day on the brink of eternity, we will look back on this life and be able to say, God gave me exactly what I needed. His gifts were perfect. Oh, friends, everything God gives is good. And what God gives is good because God is good. Verse 17 says that every good act of giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of Lights. Father of Lights is a title that's only used right here in the entire Bible. However, it was an expression that was well-known in Israel in James' day. 
It was used to describe God as creator and was rooted in the biblical account of creation. It envisions God as the creator of the sun and moon and stars, all of which were considered good gifts to humanity. We look back at Genesis 1, verses 16 through 18. Genesis 1, 16 through 18, we read, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. James' point is that God has always given good gifts. As the creator, it was his nature to do so. And the gifts in creation reflect the goodness of the Father. So what God gives is good because God is good. And he rounds out the verse with a third section teaching that God never changes. Again, verse 17, he, he says that he is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He never changes. Heavenly lights are as constant as anything in this created universe. Yet from our perspective, they're in a state of constant change. The sun rises and sets. Seasons change. The moon waxes and wanes. The stars march across the night sky. Every day begins with long shadows reaching westward. Those shadows creep up and disappear under our feet at noon, and then they begin a gradual journey to the east. Finally, they're enveloped in deepening gray that fills the void left by the sun. It's constant change. <clears throat> James contrasts that with God. In God, there is no variation, not even the movement of a shadow. Theologians call this the immutability of God. Immutability of God. That is, God never mutates. God cannot be one way today and another way tomorrow. He's never arbitrary. He's never driven by whims. Have you ever, have you ever paused to contemplate the significance of the immutability of God? Some of you are like, I just learned immutability just now, you know. Have you ever paused to contemplate that God never changes? I mean, what a difference from us. Think of what our families have to put up with. From time to time, things don't go well. We have a hard day at work. You get home grumpy, short-tempered, and surly setting off verbal grenades at anyone who's unfortunate enough to be in our pathway. The children slip around the corner into the next room and ask in a whispered voice, what's up with dad? Dad had a hard day. Have you ever thought about the fact that you never have to ask, what's up with God? Never. God never has a bad day. God is always the same. His grace is always free. 
His mercy is always compassionate. His love is always beyond measure. His word is always true. His wisdom is always dependable. Every day with God is a good day because, my friends, God is good. Oh, sometimes we have a hard time seeing this. So James gives us the ultimate illustration of God's goodness to anchor us when we're assailed by bitter circumstances and we're tempted to doubt God's goodness. In verse 18, he urges us to remember the greatest gift of all and he sets it forth as an illustration. Look at what it says. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here's his illustration. When tempted to doubt that God is good, remember the greatest gift of all, your salvation. He calls it bringing us forth. Some versions translate this as giving us birth. He's describing giving spiritual life to those who were spiritually dead. The same word is repeated in verse 15 where he says, Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Oh, friends, God gave spiritual life to those who were spiritually dead. And if you're a believer today, you have at one point in your life acknowledged that you are spiritually dead. The point is that sin, which is the universal plight of all humanity, has placed us under the condemnation of spiritual death, but God has given us life. Friend, you cannot thank yourself for that. God gave life through His sovereign initiative. Notice how He begins the verse. Of His own will, He brought us forth. Of His own will. He uses a strong word for the exercise of His will. And He places it emphatically at the beginning of the verse. This is God's initiative. You can't thank yourself for this. Without Him we would all continue in our rebellion, hurling headlong towards a heartless hell. But God has intervened. And you have no one to thank but God, not your own wisdom, not your own goodness, not your own works. So we sing that great hymn, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Oh, apart from Him we would be lost. He gave life to the spiritually dead by the exercise of His own sovereign will. And God gave life through the message of the cross. Look again, verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. He used nothing 
but the message of Christ. That is the sphere in which this kind of transformation is accomplished. It's a message of truth. It's nothing more and nothing less than the message of Christ who said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a message of truth. It's a message of life. Life that he lived on this earth, having laid aside heaven's glory to take his place by our side. A life lived in perfect obedience to the Father. And it's a message of his death, a death that he did not deserve. A death died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. This is the word of truth. This is the message of Christ. This is the message to which we add nothing, and it's a message from which we can take away nothing. Friends, if we are delivered from our sins, if we are given life by God's sovereign initiative, it will be done only through the hearing and believing of this message, the word of truth. Verse 18 gives the result of all of this. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Because of what God has done, we are God's special possessions. In the Old Testament, they practiced the offering of the firstfruits. The farmer was not allowed to partake of the very first of the harvest that came in. He was to take it to the temple because the very first belonged to God as his special possession. As such, it serves as an object lesson of the fact that it all belongs to God. But it also illustrates that it is because of God's blessing that there is much to follow. The first fruits. This is the first fruits of his blessing And much will follow as God continues to bless. Now, first fruits is applied to believers in verse 18, and it has been interpreted two ways. Both are possible, and both interpretations are wonderful. I'll give you both of them, though the second is the the interpretation that I think is correct. It could be that James, who is writing to Hebrew Christians, is saying, We Jewish Christians are the first fruits of this message, but God isn't finished yet, and there will be a great ingathering of souls from all over the world. So, in that case, the Jews were the first fruits, and we here today are the rest of the harvest being ingathered. It's a beautiful picture. I just don't think that's exactly what James had in mind. He says that we should be a kind of first fruits, literally of all his creatures, literally in the Greek, of all his creatures. It's a broad term, and I take it literally. In verse 17, he referred to the Father of lights, referring to the sun, moon, and stars. When he says that with God there is no variation or shadow due to change, he uses terminology of the cosmos, the world. The universe. I think that he has the whole created order in view. So here's the point. What God is accomplishing in this universe 
is not just about the salvation of souls. Paul said that the whole creation groans, longing for full and final redemption. And what Christ did on the cross was like a, on the cross was like a stone dropped in a pond, and the ripple continues to go out until it touches the entire created order. God is at work today, saving a ragtag band of sinners in this present age. We're a motley lot, aren't we? And he is at work making us into his special possession. But this is just the beginning. By the time he's finished, because of Christ, he will transform every molecule of this universe for his own glory. We're the first fruits of that. And the rest is yet to follow. Oh, you don't believe it? Listen to what John said in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Oh, friends, the old is gone. Everything's new. God in our midst and us there as his special possession, the first fruits of it all. So stop doubting the goodness of God. What God gives is good because God is good and he never changes. And if you struggle to see that, then contemplate the greatest example of his goodness, your own, your own salvation. Oh, listen, we must do this because those with living faith remember that everything good comes from God. And God is good in all things. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness. Oh, help us to apply ourselves to the task of seeing your good hand in all things. We confess that sometimes it's not readily apparent to us, but we trust you, Lord. Lord, do what you see fit in each of our lives so that we may bring lives that bring you glory and teach us joy in all these things. We give you the praise for all that you accomplish in us and through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.